Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. Welcome to episode 6 of my series, The Wampus Frolic. This week is a special episode, one I'm calling the Old Movie Lady Close-Up. I will be tracking the publicity of one of the biggest success stories to come out of the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers' Baby Stars program, and certainly their most accurate prediction from the year 1924, Clara Bow. While you can expect a certain amount of biographical information in this episode, my focus is going to be on how Clara Bow was presented to the public, with a focus on fan magazines, and how when she began to step out of line, how the media that surrounded her took a troubling turn. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady Close-Up, Clara Bow. In Golden Images, 41 Essays on Silent Film Stars by Eve Golden, she describes Clara as being born into Dickensian squalor, and that seems to be an accurate assessment. Brooklyn, New York, in 1905, was, for the poor, a potentially dangerous place. Tenement housing, like where the Bow family lived, was cramped, stuffy, often with insufficient plumbing, no electricity, too many people, and too few windows. Healthcare, especially mental health care, was inaccessible. Illnesses spread quickly. Pests like bedbugs, fleas, cockroaches, and rodents ran rampant. Family life was tumultuous. Clara's mother, Sarah, suffered from severe mental health issues. She was eventually institutionalized after reportedly attempting to take Clara's life. She passed away shortly after. Clara's father, who drank heavily, was abusive in a myriad of horrific ways. And through it all stood little Clara Bow, one day icon of the silent era. She later called herself a tomboy, developing an armor of rough and tumble spunkiness as she played with the neighborhood boys. And simultaneously, as movie houses began to spring up all over Brooklyn, she cracked that armor just enough to dream of a different life. Teenage Clara saw nothing but excitement on the flickering screens she would have spent her weekends gazing up at. The biggest dramas, the biggest laughs, the biggest romances, and the biggest, most beautiful faces, living the most glamorous lives, which, for 25 cents, she read about in her favorite fan magazines. Doris Kenyon, Rudolph Valentino, Gloria Swanson, Renee Adore, all bold and beautiful and in her small hands. And it was a page in an issue of Motion Picture Magazine in 1921 that caught Clara's eye and changed her life forever. The magic key to the screen. The fame and fortune contest of 1921. Are you young? Are you pretty? Can you act? Have you personality? Do you photograph well? If you possess all these qualifications, you are exactly what we are looking for. If you have not all but a combination of two or more, your chances for a screen career are good. 
Clara assessed herself and figured she was in for a pretty good shot. I just assessed myself too, and hey, at least I do have a personality. All she had to do was mail in a picture of herself to get the ball rolling. I actually told you about the Fame and Fortune contest back in Episode 3, when Virginia Brown Fair won it along with four others in 1919. 1920 was even more glutted with winners, with eight young women being given the magic key to the screen. But in 1921, there could be only one. The New Star, announced Motion Picture Magazine's January 1922 edition. The great contest is closed. The winner is chosen. These two short sentences might tell it all, representing as they do nearly a year of labor and interest for the makers of the contest, and nearly a year of hopes and disappointments for the thousands of contestants. The winner is Miss Clara Bow, 857 73rd Street, Brooklyn, New York. She is very young, only 16. But she is full of confidence, determination, and ambition. She is endowed with a mentality far beyond her years. She has a genuine spark of the divine fire. The five different screen tests she had showed this very plainly, her emotional range of expression provoking a fine enthusiasm from every judge who saw the tests. She screens perfectly. I actually don't feel super comfortable reading the entire description they continue on with about her looks, since Clara was, as they mentioned, only 16 at the time. But the gist of it is, was that she was very beautiful. The writer paid special attention to her mouth, and ends by noting that she has a zest which is denied those of more mature years. And the picture of Clara that won her the fame and fortune contest, and featured in that issue of Motion Picture looks like a photo of a glamorous child. Teenagers from the past are often mocked today for looking much older than they really were, but take away the adult decorations, the hairstyles, glasses, fashion, and, and you know, most 16-year-olds look impossibly young. Certainly Clara Bow did. In fact, she looks so young in that photo that won her the fame and fortune contest that it makes me think that there may be some validity to her later claim, supported by her headstone, that she was actually born in 1907, but who knows. The contest promised two years of publicity, with the winner's name mentioned in every issue, along with portraits and frequent interviews. It promised that Clara Bow would be a star. She had never acted before. Beyond the Rainbow, 1922, was arranged to be her first appearance on screen as part of her winnings, but there is much confusion over how much of her work was left on the cutting room floor. Her next picture was Elmer Clifton's Down to the Sea in Ships, which was a Whaling Film Corp. production filmed in New England. And though the film and Clara's performance got quite a bit of attention despite its relatively small budget, Stardom still felt worlds away. The only thing to do, if Clara wanted to prove the fame and fortune contest judges right, was to head west. Leaving behind everything she had ever known, she headed to Hollywood. A new film find, announced Screenland in their November 1923 edition. 
Preferred Pictures has a new discovery in the person of Clara Bow, a little Brooklyn girl. Miss Bow is really a find of Elmer Clifton. She has just played opposite Glenn Hunter in Grit and begins her preferred contract with Maytime. That summer, she had signed with Preferred Pictures founder B.P. Schulberg. Schulberg's M.O. is to give the bulk of his attention to just one star at a time, and luckily for Clara, she was that star. Maytime, as they mentioned in the Screenland piece, starred Ethel Shannon, baby star of 1923. It failed to make her into a big name, however. But Clara Bow, in a smaller role, was gaining momentum hastily. And all the while, down to the sea in ships was the little indie that could, playing, for example, for 22 weeks straight in some markets. So audiences, as well as getting excited for all of the new projects Schulberg was arranging for her, like Black Oxen with Corinne Griffith, also were discovering her on their own because of the word-of-mouth recommendations for Down to the Sea. Preferred announces that Clara Bow, that little Brooklyn high school girl whose rise on the screen horizon is one of the sensations of the year, will appear in the screen production of Robert W. Service's story Poisoned Paradise, says the exhibitor's trade reviews October 13, 1923 edition. When the Wampus decided to put her on their 1924 list, they were making a shrewd choice. Poisoned Paradise subtitled The Forbidden Story of Monte Carlo, was released the month after the Wampus Frolic and Ball. It was her first leading role, second build opposite Kenneth Harlan, and she took the ball and ran with it. Play up the title, which is certain to arouse curiosity, instructed Motion Picture News to theater owners in its March 15, 1924 issue. Mention the cast, and play up Clara Bow. The messaging is clear. Tell your patrons Clara Bow is in it, and the movie will sell. This was less than a year after her arrival in Hollywood. Few actresses can compete with Clara Bow, precocious baby vamp, for artlessness or innocence on the screen, Photoplay tells us in their December 1924 issue. Her type was being established, the baby vamp, a mix between the ingenue and the true vixen. Cropped hair and bold makeup on a darling, wide-eyed face. She'll break your heart, but she's a good girl deep down. She's a flapper, for sure, wild and free-spirited, sexy and somewhat anxiety-inducing. But no one could ignore the inherent sweetness that Clara Bow's face held. In 1924 and 1925, Clara made over 20 films, almost all of which had her playing flappers. Daughters of Pleasure... Wine, The Adventurous Sex, The Lawful Cheater, Eve's Lover, My Lady of Whims, and many more. This was an untenable schedule. She was working her ass off. At least she was usually in top build or co-starring roles, allowing her profile to grow and grow, if not her prestige. While not the be-all, end-all as a measure of popularity, the Quigley Publishing Company's Top 10 Money-Making Stars poll, which asked theater owners whose films put the most butts in seats, is a nice insight on who, well, was putting butts in seats. The Wampus Baby star of 1922 and known flapper Colleen Moore arrived on the list in 1923, 
1924 and 1925, the majority of stars are well-established, a bit older, and appeared in pictures not particularly aimed at the youth market. For example, just looking at the women, Norma Talmadge, Marion Davies, Gloria Swanson, and Mary Pickford were all in their mid-to-late 20s or early 30s. Not old by any stretch of the imagination, but unlikely to be convincingly playing a jazz-mad teenager either. The tide was changing, however, and soon Clara Bow would top the pole. The Plastic Age was released in late 1925. It was Clara Bow's first real hit movie, especially with younger audiences, the college movie's target, who were out in theaters spending more money than ever before. But its charms, of which Clara led the charge, appealed across demographics. If there was ever a picture that registers 100% in entertainment, then this is it, begins a review of the Plastic Age in the Exhibitor's Herald by a theater owner. Certainly it's a dandy, and is sold so that you can make some money on it. Can recommend to everybody. Not long before the release of the Plastic Age, some behind-the-scenes shake-ups were happening. Namely, B.P. Schulberg filed for bankruptcy and dissolved his production company. Rumor has it that he had severe gambling issues. With an already close working relationship with Jesse Lasky at Famous Players, it made sense when, post-bankruptcy, he moved over there. Plus, they needed new stars, and he had the perfect one on a personal contract. Four actors came with him from preferred pictures. Gilbert Rowland, an absolute babe who appeared in the Plastic Age with Clara and began a relationship with her, Donald Keith, who was also in the Plastic Age but wasn't as much of a babe, Alice Mills, a promising newcomer whose short stint in Hollywood ended with her marriage, and of course his true star slash meal ticket, Clara Bow. Quick note about famous players. You'll catch me several times using famous players, famous players Lasky, and Paramount interchangeably and indiscriminately which, to be fair to me, is exactly what the trade papers and magazines did at the time. The history of the organization is filled with succession-level mergers, takeovers, and double dealings, federal trade commission violations, and all sorts of dramatic stuff that I barely understand. In 1926, Adolf Zucker was the president, Jesse Lasky was the vice president, and their studio was one of the largest and most powerful in Hollywood though eventually the Paramount name was the one that became front and center, especially before 1927, it depended on the context which name was used. By whatever name, the move to Paramount felt like great news for Clara Bow. While she had buzzed before, nothing compares to the publicity push they were able to afford her. She was showing off new fashions in photo play. She was being featured in picture play. Clara Bow has suddenly taken everyone by storm, declared Motion Picture Magazine. And beyond her movies, though she had some great successes in 1926, including Dancing Mothers and Man Trap, the thing she got the most publicity for was her love life. I mentioned the absolute babe Gilbert Rowland before. The Plastic Age marked his film debut and his introduction to Clara. The engagement of Clara Bow to Gilbert Rowland has had its western premiere, 
announced Photoplay in their June 1926 issue. Gilbert wasn't the most pleasing choice from the perspective of, say, Clara's father or Schulberg and the other top brass at Paramount. Born in Mexico in 1905, he'd had a hard scrabble childhood, especially after immigrating to America as a young teenager. Now a frankly beautiful young man on the Paramount payroll, he still didn't have any money to speak of and no guarantee of success. Her father's influence was likely the thing that put an end to their romance. Rumors place it as racism, or possessive control, or some combination therein, though letters between Gilbert and Beau years later, as they remained close friends, indicate that her father also disapproved over their financial differences. Not long after Schulberg moved her with him to Paramount, Clara signed her first official contract directly with them. It's notable because Clara was able to negotiate that she not be subject to a morality clause. These clauses had become standard fare over the last few years, and were used to keep stars quite firmly in line. Your contract could and would be terminated if you were involved in basically anything deemed scandalous. But not Clara Bow. In lieu of a morality clause in her contract with Paramount, they had offered her a sort of bonus system. Essentially, it was a trust fund that would accrue over time that would be paid out to her at the end of her contract, if she stayed out of trouble. And the definition of trouble was highly subjective and open to interpretation by Paramount and the production code office. A short-lived engagement between two 20-year-olds even when one of the 20-year-olds is one of the fastest-growing stars of the year, doesn't offer much fodder for gossips and didn't count as a scandal. But it did crack the door open ever so slightly into Clara's personal life. It was just the beginning. She plays the reckless younger generation on and off the screen, starts a photoplay caption in their September 1926 edition, under a photo of Clara holding a puppy. Little Clara Bow got her name in the papers recently, when Robert Savage, untamed Yale student, tried to kill himself because Clara wouldn't marry him. In the subsequent trial, everything seems to go to court these days, Robert testified that Clara kissed him so fervently that he was laid up with a sore jaw for two days. And now Clara says the more she sees of men, the better she likes dogs. Let's unpack some of that fuckery right now. Hmm, that could be my catchphrase. On and off screen, she plays the reckless generation. Great, we've established out the gate that Clara Bow is reckless, and it's okay to assume that she is just like the wild flapper character she plays in her films. Clara Bow got her name in the papers, letting you know that what happened is all her fault. She got herself into this situation. Robert Savage was a Yale student. Classic, must mention the young man's prestigious credentials. Next, we assign direct blame on a suicide attempt to Clara. If she'd only married him, he wouldn't have tried to do that. Again, her fault. Now the trial. 
A quick snide remark about how too many things go to court these days. At least it's nice to know that that has been a complaint for nearly a century. And then no mention whatsoever about what was actually trying to be established in court. Just a sentence about Clara being such a man-eater that she hurt this guy's jaw. Finally, a joke that heavily implies Clara has seen so many men that they have lost their appeal. The messaging, smack dab, in the middle of the biggest year of her career to date, Clara Bow's sexuality is dangerous. Before I move on, of course I'm going to tell you what Photoplay didn't. Robert Savage was a stalker, an obsessed fan. They met at a party, she was friendly with him, some reports say flirty, but fundamentally nothing happened and she wasn't interested in him. Though, even if she had banged the guy, that doesn't change the fact that none of this was her fault. He spent the next few days showing up on her front porch and just sitting there. Then, according to the reporting in Variety about the case, he kidnapped her in his car. He told her that she had to marry him or he would self-harm and drove her off to get a marriage license. It was only because they were delayed by a traffic incident that they never made it inside the license bureau before it closed. At this point, Clara convinced him to stop the nonsense and take her home. Later, he made an attempt on his own life. When asked if she had ever had any romantic intentions towards him, Clara said no, and that the whole thing is ridiculous. The trial was to prove his mental competency. It was not to prove that Clara Bow was a man-eater. But you'd never know that from photoplay. The scandal did not, through some miracle, derail Clara's career. That miracle being that she didn't have a morals clause in her contract. But it did give weight to other suggestions that her behavior was suspect, that perhaps she did not behave in ways becoming for a young lady. When later that year she announced her engagement to director Victor Fleming, an older, more established suitor, the reaction was one of, I'll believe it when I see it. In Photoplay's January 1927 edition, they wrote, His parents didn't name him Victor for nothing. Mr. Fleming actually persuaded Clara Bow to say yes, and the marriage will take place next year. Provided, of course, Clara does not slip out of the lover's knot once again. And when she almost immediately announced that the engagement was off, in fact, before that issue of Photoplay was even released, the reaction was a scoff. I'll never announce Clara Bow's engagement again, said the Cal York column in the next issue. Nor will I ever trust a red-headed girl. Typical man-mad Clara added again. Though this coverage was more than a little tongue-in-cheek, the one thing everyone seemed to agree on was that these men were as defenseless against her charms as the audiences that loved her on screen. And indeed, it all came down to one factor. It. The it factor. The certain something. The special wow. Conventionally credited to writer Eleanor Glynn in 1927, Definitely part of the lexicon earlier than that, as we learned in episode two of this podcast. It did come to the forefront of the public's attention when Glynn published her book, It, 
a section of which also appeared in Cosmopolitan magazine. It is that quality possessed by some few persons which draws all others with its magnetic life force, Glynn wrote. With it you win all men if you are a woman, and all women if you are a man. More than simple sex appeal, it meant confidence, a total lack of self-consciousness, and a wild, uncontrollable, and irresistible side. Glynn was also later quoted as saying, The women who possess it are simply devastating. Clara Bow, obviously, had it, and conveniently, Eleanor Glynn was writing the screenplay adaptation of her book for Paramount. It, released in February 1927, became Clara Bow's career-defining role. It, if you haven't seen it, is wonderful. A genuinely funny romantic comedy, It showcases Clara perfectly. I'm not the only one who thinks so, as reviewer Lawrence Reed wrote in Motion Picture News. There is nothing to it but Clara Bow, but she is so dynamic, so sure of her stuff, so abundantly vital, that she makes the film entertaining in spite of itself. Clara has so much it that it spills over and engulfs Antonio Moreno. Now, I actually think that her love interest in the film Antonio Moreno is quite good here. And the film, on the whole, is better than his assessment. But the fact is that, even if all that is accurate, it is still worth watching, simply because of Clara Bow. But this professional success wasn't about to stop the cynical comments about her personal life. It's announced that Clara Bow is engaged to Gary Cooper, her leading man in Children of Divorce. At least Gary has the distinction of being the first one this month, sneers Motion Picture Magazine's April 1927 edition. If the boys would take a tip from Ulysses and wear earmuffs while working with Clara, they would at least get themselves a little publicity for being different. That gal may have sex appeal, but she's got a strong sales talk, too. She had big hits with It, Children of Divorce, and the Academy Award-winning Wings that same year. But photoplay couldn't help but pile on, too. In an article they called The Real Hellraisers of Hollywood in their June issue, they called Clara... The girl who burns them up and leaves them cold, as Robert Savage can testify. Robert Savage, the guy who tried to force her into marrying him against her will? Oh, okay, okay, photoplay. Just so you're keeping up, then, the messaging was that Clara Bow had it, which is great for movies, but also made her irresistible as a person, and she used that, the little hellraiser, to sell men on the idea of marriage and then ruin their lives by changing her mind? She was both a tramp and a tease. How dare she? Clara herself went on record in 1928 in an interview with Motion Picture Magazine. They called it Clara Bow's Love Life. The idiotiest girl on screen tells every detail but one. It's as charming as you might expect. She sounds like a girl gushing guilelessly about her various boyfriends, because essentially that's exactly what she was doing. I believe this was an attempt to set the record straight, 
openly and with the freedom that came with her persona. After years of rumors and snipes, here she was to tell all. She felt she had nothing to be ashamed of, but because the morals of the time were far stricter than movies may demonstrate, it feels very much like Clara Bow was walking straight into a trap. The one detail she wouldn't share? Oh, you know, just the name of the married man she was dating. He is not living with his wife. There are no children. I was sure of this before I let him come out to see me, she is quoted. I love him. There were consequences for being so open. Socially, despite being one of the biggest stars in the world, she was rejected from Hollywood society. The Guardian quotes actor Lena Basquet as saying, She wasn't well-liked amongst other women in the film colony. Her social presence was taboo, and it was rather silly, because God knows Marion Davies and Mary Pickford had plenty to hide. It's just that they hid it, and Clara didn't. There's a classist element to all of this, too. Though not all of the old guard stars came from money, they took pride in carrying themselves as if they did. Not so little Brooklynite Clara Bow. Though Paramount was able to hush up the married man's wife at first, though eventually details got out, which Clara herself confirmed, the fact that Clara had spoken about the relationship at all was freaking everybody out. Clara Bow's reputation, though she was still getting piles and piles of fan letters, was on very shaky ground. With the arrival of talkies, Clara's Brooklyn accent didn't stand in her way as much as some later rumors put it, but she was overworked, overexposed, underpaid and overspending, didn't enjoy the process of making sound films, and was struggling to break free of her wild young thing typecasting to stretch as a performer. Attempts at more dramatic roles fell flat. And as if the whispers, shouts, of promiscuity following her around weren't enough, and in one sense, it wasn't enough to damage her drawing power with the fans, magazines starting in the late 1920s in particular started jabbing her about her weight, too. Clara Bow is waging a terrific battle to keep down the pounds, photoplay gleefully reported in their December 1929 issue. It was just another way of painting Clara as someone out of control with her indulgences. Will the immortal flapper learn self-discipline? The magazine asked a few months later. Or is she fated to dance her way into oblivion? They call her a spoiled and willful child in the piece, shake their fists at her boyfriend and money trouble, but swear to be rooting for her success. All of this feels, with the hindsight of ninety-odd years, designed to destroy Clara Bow. But to what end? She was still making money for Paramount, money, frankly, that they desperately needed as their top studio position was slipping. From the fan magazine's perspective, sex and shame were big sellers. We continued to see this again and again, decade after decade. Worst beach bodies, affairs exposed, plastic surgery gone wrong, phones being hacked. Public relish in the destruction of our idols. 
especially women. Back then, though, the studios were supposed to protect their stars. Hell, the Wampuses boycotted an entire magazine for reporting unfavorably on someone's ankles. And while they couldn't do much as far as newspaper gossip columns were concerned, they could influence the narrative of the fan magazines. But control is a major, major factor. Without a morality clause in her contract, even with her Be a Good Girl bonus trust, some of which was used to silence the married guy's wife, Clara Bow could not be controlled in the same way other stars could. Paramount, in my opinion anyway, allowed for a certain level of public shaming in an attempt to keep Clara Bow in line. That was the game they were playing, the risk they were taking. The problem was that Clara Bow wasn't playing a game. She wasn't strategizing or plotting out her next move. And one gets the feeling that she simply didn't have a strong sense of self-preservation. She was too trusting. Trusting that Paramount would protect her. Trusting that her words wouldn't be misunderstood or twisted. And trusting that the people that she cared about had her best interests at heart. In January 1931, Clara Bow's ex-secretary and best friend, Daisy DeVoe, went on trial for theft and extortion of the star. Daisy came into Clara's life in 1929 and set to work organizing the mess that her finances were in. That she achieved that is, I don't think, up for any debate. She even set up another trust independent of Paramount that Clara relied on later in life. But... She was also accused of siphoning off money for herself and of attempting to blackmail Clara with a collection of personal letters and documents that would, for all intents and purposes, ruin her life. Such is the way of blackmail that when an extortion case goes to court, all that dirty laundry tends to pull focus away from the charge at hand. Gambling, violence, drinking, illegally, prohibition was ongoing, and numerous overlapping love affairs were detailed. That included a supposedly live-in boyfriend, Rex Bell. Intimate telegrams were read aloud in court from various men, including Rex and ex-fiancé-slash-starfucker Harry Richmond. Receipts for lavish gifts for her lovers, like that married man, were submitted into evidence. In fact, it took weeks of testimony, according to the New York Times, before the judge finally declared that only items relevant to the case could be discussed. As a result, today's court session was a tepid affair, they said. But the mudslinging had already stuck. During the trial, Clara's film No Limit was released. All that good and bad, mostly bad, publicity Clara Bow is receiving in that coast mess will be needed though twice as much couldn't make this a good picture. The film flopped. Daisy DeVoe was acquitted on 34 counts and found guilty of one. She was sentenced to 18 months incarceration. To be clear, I haven't formed a clear opinion on her actual culpability on the larceny front, which is one of the reasons I haven't dug into all of the details. Rex Bell, it turns out, had his own motivations for getting Daisy out of the way, spawning from a power struggle between them both. 
Whatever the truth, Rex won, and Clara Bow definitely didn't. It doesn't really look as though Clara Bow is ever going to keep out of trouble, snarks the Cal York column in March's photo play. The latest mess, this lawsuit that the papers have been full of, was positively disgusting. Her amatory adventures, even with Harry Richmond and Rex Bell, promote no great admiration for her. But now, Clara has proven herself a sucker. She's a sucker. She's disgusting, and she can't keep out of trouble. Again, the message is clear. This is all Clara Bow's own fault. Clara's physical and mental health were in shambles. For a few years now, problems had plagued her, including more than one hospitalization. I always want to cry, she told Photoplay back in 1929. I could cry at any minute. She spoke of her burnout and anxiety, though she didn't have the terms back then. Get up in the morning, go to work, 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 go home at night, can't sleep, think too much, think about everything, mind goes on and on and on. After the trial, things just got worse. Her mental health plummeted, and Clara Bow entered a healthcare facility. Clara Bow, the girl who lost the brakes, reads Silver Screen's August 1931 issue. She lost romance when her engagement to Harry Richmond broke up. She lost her faith and friendship with the Daisy DeVoe affair. She lost her health and is resting in a sanatorium. And now she's lost her contract with Paramount. But she hasn't lost her courage, or her beauty, or her fans. Silver Screen hopes, Clara, that you'll be back soon, the same radiant peppy kid of old. Screenland took their pleas even further. Help save Clara Bow, they begged that same month. Save her from pitiless publicity, the mockery of men, the ingratitude of friends. Save her from herself. You can, but first, is she worth saving? She is, of course, they say, if she can just have the full support of her fans. It's a little clap if you believe in fairies. No amount of fan letters would fix Clara's problems. After a rest and a wedding to Rex Bell, Clara made two more movies, Call Her Savage in 1932 and Hoopla the following year. Call Her Savage in particular did very well, but it was too little too late. Though she could have kept going, in fact, plenty of studios wanted her services, it's clear that for her own sake, no, she couldn't keep going. After her retirement, Clara made few public statements or appearances. She and Rex had two sons and never divorced, though they lived separately for many years after her mental health declined even further. Clara Bow passed away in 1965. I'm not sure how to end her story. Shadows of it color stories of it girls to come. Women lauded for their energy, for their beauty, and often for their unguarded personalities, who get 
lift it up and parade it around, and then get their vulnerabilities turned against them. There's been little evolution in the audience's desire to see bold women taken down a peg. And then when they are suitably humbled, or more accurately shamed, then we get to wring our hands and say, Oh, why was everyone so mean to her? And then we'll do it again. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Old Movie Lady podcast, Close Up, Clara Bow, Wampus Baby Star of 1924. If you've been enjoying the show, please rate, review, subscribe as you see fit. I've been your host, Marg, the Old Movie Lady, an unholy mess of a girl.